Navigating the world as a disabled person is hard enough as it is. When you throw in the complexities of applying, qualifying for, and receiving government benefits, something that is supposed to make that easier can have the opposite effect. Enter Connor Cavanaugh, Managing Partner and Special Needs Planner for Palladio Consulting. Connor has built his career out of making life easier for those who have it the hardest. Join us for the latest episode of Bourbon with Beagle as we discuss tactics, resources, and helpful information and tips on building a solid financial foundation for those who need it the most. I'll be drinking High West American Prairie Bourbon. What about you? I'd like to welcome Connor Cavanaugh with us again today. Uh, Connor was a guest under the generational series that we did as a millennial. But today he's coming back to speak specifically about programs that help special needs trust and helps individuals that have disabilities. And so I think it's very important to understand those programs and how they work because we're seeing more and more families having to do long range planning for their family members on how to navigate the system if something were to happen to them and they want to make sure that the disabled child is really well taken care of through the process. So Connor, thank you again for coming on, on our show. Appreciate that. And first of all, tell me a little bit about uh, your background on, in working with a disability community and especially uh, the two programs we're going to talk about today, which is ABLE Accounts and Special Needs Trust. Yeah. Well, about, what was it? About 10 years ago, I uh, I started Palladio Consulting, a, a planning firm that works exclusively in the disability community. And I tell the story, Gary, by saying that it was, it, it was started, you know, 95% luck and 5% kind of conscious thought where the 95% was, I went to a training in San Diego. I was a year, uh, let's see, I was three months out of college and I was just thirsty to learn more information. Well, I go to a training in San Diego and it was all on specialties planning. And I leave that saying, hmm, there's a huge need that nobody knows a lot about. Let's explore a, a bit further. The 5% conscious thought was, hey, we have 19% of the U.S. population, according to the 2010 census, uh, 19% of the U.S. population has a disability, right. whether it's, you know, intellectual disability, a physical disability, a learning disability. And so it's a large subsection of the population that there's just not a lot of resources out there and especially on kind of navigating the ins and outs of it. So like you mentioned, we'll talk about ABLE and we'll talk about special needs trust, but that's the landscape of it. And that's kind of how we came to be and I came to be. So I don't, most people think I, I, I came to the, to the disability community because I have a son or daughter or brother or sister, some type of personal experience in the disability community, which is actually not the case though. I say, well, yeah. You're, you're way too young, but I can actually remember when they started special needs trust back 20 years ago or so. Yeah. And, um, actually, um, my fiduciary agency with our attorney was one of the first ones to request a special needs trust be set up under a conservatorship uh, because of the new law. And of course, the ABLE accounts have been just recently brought on board as well. But we are seeing more and more need for the services that you're providing on setting these up, helping us manage the investments, and to make sure that we're not um, violating any of the provisions within the special needs trust statutes or ABLE accounts mm -hmm. status. So ABLE Accounts, I wish I could remember what it stands for, but I don't. That's <laughs> so, right. 
Yeah. What what is an able account? Yeah. So, you know, able is a is one of their fancy acronyms achieving a better life experience and okay. to set the stage you know, there's uh, of that 19% of the population with a with a disability. Many of those individuals are receiving needs-based government benefits, and right. to be eligible, you know, for the needs-based government benefits like SSI or Medicaid, you have to be under $2,000 in assets. And so, since those programs launched, you know, in the 60s, you'd say, gosh, well, for the last, you know. 60 years, individuals had to live in poverty to essentially qualify for those important supports. Well, back in 2014, President Obama signed into federal law the ABLE Act, which allows an individual with with a disability who's receiving those important government benefits to have an ABLE account that's in their name that's not countable towards that $2,000 asset limit. So nowadays, you know, somebody could have $35,000 in an ABLE account and be receiving their $841 a month SSI check and be receiving right. important Medicaid supports, but yet save money in that account and have it accumulate. And they can use that for an assistive technology or a vacation or tickets to the Mariners playoff baseball game. And so all these really cool, you know, life, life experience things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do because of that $2,000 asset limit. So Gary, it's really, I mean, game-changing and in many instances, life-changing law. And so it's been around, yeah, for federally since 2014, uh, Oregon, 2016, Washington, 2019, I believe, but they're incredibly impactful. So part of the thing on the ABLE account, if I'm correct on it, is that there's no restrictions about how the money is spent. You can do it on food, housing, anything, uh, which is not true of a special needs trust. And we'll talk about that a little earlier. Is that the indication that you're seeing is that it, that it can be used for, for all of those purposes? Yeah. You know, one of the things in which Congress wanted, and I, I think advocates wanted when the ABLE Act was actually going through the whole legislative process was they wanted this to be an empowerment tool. They wanted the money to be able to be flexible and it definitely is. I mean, uh, we use the term, hey, the money can be used anything for the sole benefit of the individual. We've actually used it in conjunction with the special needs trust, especially for real estate owned by the special needs trust, because uh, uh, taxes are considered housing, real property taxes. So we've had uh, in conjunction an ABLE account in order to pay those taxes without any any repercussions at all to the benefit beneficiary of the special needs trust and some of those things. So that's been a big lifesaver for some of our clients Yeah, because we used to have to pay it and take the, the third deduction and Mm. for a month and, and do all the guidelines for Medicaid on that. Yep. Yeah. So how would one, um, there's several States that offer able accounts, uh, out there and, Let's talk a little bit about how you might select one other than the state you're living in uh, for for the ABLE account administration. Yeah, so there's, I believe the tally is up to 46 of the 50 states have an ABLE account, and most of them are open to individuals who do not reside in that in that state. Mm-hmm. You know, how we think about, you know, what, what ABLE account might somebody use, many of the ABLE accounts for the most part, as you look at high level, are, are, are very similar. What the money can be used for, how much can you contribute to the ABLE account, things like that. Where some of the ABLE accounts are different because 
the ABLE Act is federal law, but each and every state had to opt in and establish their own state ABLE plan. And so some of the states, you know, have things like um, I, I believe Ohio has nine different investment options. Oregon and Washington have three. The Massachusetts plan is run by, uh, I believe it's American funds. The Oregon and Washington plan is run by Vanguard. That's that's who who, who the, um, I shouldn't use the term run by, the investment options are Vanguard. So there's some of those small, small differences. A really good resource is ablenrc.org, which able. NRC is National Resource Center, and um, there is a tool on that website that allows somebody to uh, compare and contrast three different plans at, at, at once. You select three different plans. It gives you this really helpful spreadsheet that you can compare you know, fees and investment options and those types of things. So many families, especially in, in uh, Oregon, for example, use their state plan because Oregon's plan specifically has um, a $300 tax credit that, that's available. So there's small things like that that might be beneficial. But yeah, most of them across the board, fairly similar. But the ABLE National Resource Center is a great, great resource to compare and contrast. And let's talk a little bit about the criteria for the individual being able to have an ABLE account and then the criteria for the how much contribution you can make per year and all those what I call constraints to some extent for those programs? So to qualify for the ABLE account, the current legislation is an individual has to have a qualifying disability that occurred prior to age 26 to establish establish the ABLE account. So Down syndrome diagnosis at birth, autism at three or five or eight, absolutely. If the medical diagnosis happened before 26, you're eligible for the ABLE account. There's pending legislation to potentially increase that to age to age to age 46, which would be fantastic. Um, but mm-hmm. at this point, we're still you know hanging on. Um, the people and the kind of the, the the disability subgroups that get left out are veterans coming back from from serving our country overseas. Somebody has a traumatic brain injury after age 26. Those are the individuals experiencing disability now that don't fall under the current or aren't eligible for the current able plan. So. We're optimistic that advocates and policymakers have it on their agenda because they see how impactful the ABLE account has been for the, you know, um, for the individuals that currently have them. The ability to save money for a future expense is an important just general financial planning concept and becomes much more important, especially for individuals with disabilities who may have expenses come up that uh, that aren't you know, foreseen. So. Absolutely. I, we've, we've had a challenge as well, meeting the 26 age limit here where we have people that have, we can't go back and, and actually document, even though we probably know the disability occurred prior to age 26, but we just can't document it. So thus we, we can't take advantage of the ABLE account. One of the things you mentioned that I think is important is disabilities at birth are genetic uh, we had a client that has Huntington disease, which is genetic. Uh, we were able to get them an ABLE account because it's genetic, and we said it that occurs at birth. So I think there are some ways to kind of finesse that where you would be able to have an ABLE account, um, where at first glance you wouldn't be able to. Yeah. So the ABLE accounts are you can contribute up to ten thousand per year. Is that correct? 
It's actually up to sixteen thousand now. Oh, on okay. a yeah, sixteen thousand on an annual basis. Yeah, well. and uh, you know the other cool thing. So any individual, regardless of age, sixteen thousand dollars a year can go into their able account. Doesn't matter if it's coming from one person, being mom or dad or grandma or sixteen people. Sixteen thousand dollars a year for 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 everybody. Now, right. in twenty seventeen, there was a law that passed that um, it's it's the able to work contribution amount that's mm-hmm. an additional twelve thousand eight hundred and eighty dollars for an individual that's that's employed. Right. So you could have somebody who's you know earning uh, I don't know fifteen thousand dollars a year you know working you know at Safeway and they could put in an additional twelve thousand eight hundred eighty for darn near almost $30,000 a year contributions to enable account. So really, really cool. Gosh, when you think about the premise behind needs-based benefits, that goes against everything that needs-based benefits like Social Security and Medicaid were set up to do. And so it's really cool just to see um, Congress get on board and policymakers get on board with allowing these types of contribution amounts to these, these types of able accounts. So- and is there a limit at how much dollars can be in the ABLE account? So it's a little bit complicated, but if an individual is on SSI and they're receiving the $841 a month needs-based Social Security benefit, the most they can have in an ABLE account while still being eligible for that SSI check is, is 100000 Okay. For an individual that's on an SSDI benefit, or a social security benefit that could be based on their work record or a parent's work record at that point, if they're only on that benefit, they can have up to the state maximum, which Oregon and Washington, well, Oregon, for example, is um, 400,000, you know, let's take Ohio, for example, they're 525,000. So long story short, if you're on SSI, you want to keep your, your ABLE account under a hundred thousand. If you're on SSDI, you can have up to what tends to be in the 400s to 500,000, depending on the state. So really, yeah. That's a great uh, tool to be utilized. Are you seeing individuals that have children that have disabilities early in life, uh, like at three or four, going ahead and setting up an ABLE account and contributing to that account prior to them reaching 18? Yeah, you know, it's what we've seen is... It was common practice, you know, you know, five or 10 years ago that a grandparent says, well, gosh, I'd love to save for my grandchild. I'm going to set up a college 529 for him. Mm-hmm. And so we see all these college accounts being set up for, you know, a grandchild or a child and the custodian or the person that oversees it, you know, is grandpa or grandma or mom or dad. Well, now with the ABLE account being as flexible as it is, being able to be used for college, but yet every other expense for an individual, many grandparents or parents are setting up ABLE accounts and using it in the same way of saying, hey, we have a nine-month-old. We'd like to start putting 50 bucks a month away for their future. We know they have a diagnosis and a disability. Let's set up an ABLE account instead of a college 529. And so, yeah, we see a lot of families, I think, beginning to be more proactive on the planning side because most families realize that government benefits don't cover everything right. and won't cover everything, you know, for the life of their child. Um, and so they want to be proactive by, uh, you know, saving. So so when we talk about setting it up, how how's the process for that? And is it easy? Is it difficult? Or uh, how does that process work? Yep. So 
you can only set up the ABLE account in most states. In Oregon and Washington, for example, to speak to them, you can only set up a Oregon or Washington ABLE account directly through um, both Oregon and Washington's uh, ABLE websites. Okay. So there's a specific website for each and every state that most states you have to go directly to their website to establish the account. Um, there is a paper application, but most people do the online application. It's easy. It's straightforward. Sure. You can't open an ABLE account if you go down to your local bank. They're going to look at you like you're speaking a different language. Most financial planners and advisors are going to say the same thing or going to give you the same reaction because they cannot establish an ABLE account um, because it is state administered, which the the Oregon and the, and the, the uh, Washington ABLE websites easy, intuitive. It takes probably 20 minutes to get it set up. So that's, I think, what confuses many families is, you know, like a an investment account, you can go to, you know, vanguard.com sure. and, you know, this is a little bit different. It's got to be on the state ABLE website. Okay. And so if the person wants to make a distribution out of an ABLE account, so, so for example, they want to spend $2,000 on a, a vacation for the the beneficiary. How does that work and the process for that? The good thing about ABLE accounts is there's no pre-approval for a distribution. There's no uh, submitting of what the, the money is going to be used for to get pre-approved before you take the money out. It's all self-certifying. So a parent, say they set the ABLE account on behalf of their child, the parent is self-certifying You know, under penalty of perjury that the account is being used for what it should be the sole benefit of their of their of their child and so they can take money out as if it's just any old investment account or 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 a checking account we do recommend families who are taking money out of the able account a couple of distributions a month let's say to keep track of what is being being used for in the event of some type of audit the other thing that's 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 really cool about many able plans across the country is there's a prepaid debit card that mm-hmm. you can set up that a parent can you know, or a grandparent or whoever can load money onto that prepaid debit card. They can send that card, you know, with their child, you know, and a support worker who are going to a Mariners baseball game and they can use that prepaid debit card to buy a hot dog and a Coke and tickets and a hat. And so really easy, you know, in terms of um, taking money out. Yeah. The prepaid debit card is been a great tool for individuals under, you know, conservatorship, under with special needs trust, and all of those sort of things that we can actually restrict where they spend the money to make sure that we're in compliance. But um, that's a great, been a great tool to do. And I'm glad we're moving forward into that. So if I make a a request today for uh, funds to be placed on the prepaid debit card, how long does that process usually take? We're seeing that usually take a couple business days. Okay. You know, um, I think the states are working extremely hard on the processing and the administration of the ABLE accounts really across the country, but they are all new. And so they're trying to work out some of these kinks on transfer right. times of, of moving money. But for the most part, a couple business days, you know, tends to be what, what, what we typically see and usually doesn't impact adversely the individual, you know, but right. So we talked a little bit about how the, some of the investments were handled through Vanguard or handled through somebody else. So again, I think our listeners need to realize that it is an investment tool and may go up and may go down. So you might have less than, than 
16,000 uh, in there due to the investment model. How do you, I know that people come to you for advice on how to invest because that's your expertise. So what should a parent or grandparent look at when setting these accounts as far as the investment goals, investment yeah. instruments? So every ABLE account has a cash option as well as you know a variety of different investment mm-hmm. options. Let's take Oregon and Washington, for example, because they're almost identical ABLE plans. They have three different investment options through Vanguard, conservative allocation, a moderate allocation, and an aggressive allocation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all low-cost Vanguard funds and well-performing and built of many different underlying funds, so diversified. In terms of how we help families think through how should they allocate the $10,000 contribution they make to an ABLE account, the first thing I think of is, when is that individual going to need that money? Is it going to be in six months? Is it going to be in six years? Is it going to be in 16 years? Because generally speaking, the longer the time horizon, the more time you have to mm-hmm. let the account do its ebb and flow, the ups and the downs. We've seen the market do it you know, for a hundred years now. Right. And so the longer time horizon you have to, to need the money, well, you can withstand some of those short-term storms that the market goes through because you know that over time that the market generally rises. If you need it in six months to pay for, you know, tuition or room and board, you know, at, uh, you know, a support living arrangement, well, we want to make sure that that's kept in cash, that's secure. And so we tend to lean more towards, hey, the FDIC insured, you know, investment uh, cash option through the ABLE account or the conservative fund. So whatever the goal in mind and whenever the duration of when that that money is needed you know helps us really dictate how to invest it and and that's why i think in all forms of special needs planning thinking about the vision for the individual and what does life look like for them and mm-hmm. what benefits are they receiving and how much support do they need and you know when you're going to need need the money all of those kind of uh, you know high level uh, planning discussions, I think, are important to, you know, build a good, 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 solid foundation. And oversight of the investments by the states is it done similar to like they would do their PERS programs, or how is that? How is that oversight done? Yeah, similar to how they would do their college college five twenty nine, you know, okay. um, and similar to, to PERS. I mean, the I believe it's the Treasury Board in each and every state. They have a, a board that their job is to keep tabs on the ABLE account, and if they think that the investment options are underperforming, then I'm sure they have the ability to make to make changes. The other thing I'd say is, you know, um, Vanguard or you know, American funds or any of the institutions that manage the underlying investments for able accounts they're obviously working their hardest to make sure that they're you know allocating mm-hmm. and uh, adjusting and rebalancing all the able funds you know as we go throughout the year to make sure that performance is is you know as as good as it can be the other thing I'll mention and you may get to this so stop me if you're if, if this can be a follow-up question but the tax benefits of able accounts is is really helpful and so mm-hmm. You know, you could rebalance an account and sell, you know, you could put $10,000 in your ABLE account, take all, you know, all the, all the money out, you know, in five years after it's grown to 20000 to purchase whatever, and none of that investment growth is, is uh, taxable. And so that's where the investment management, you don't have to worry about the tax implications of selling investments at a gain. So it gives the family or the investor, I guess, or 
who's ever helping the individual with with their able account not to worry about taxes when thinking about investment decisions so and that's a great tool and i would that wouldn't would not have been a follow-up question because i wouldn't have realized mm. that but that's very very good so on able accounts are there anything else that you think that our listeners would need to know about that before we move on to special needs trust I think one of the things, so the implementation rate across the country for ABLE accounts has been less than I think a lot, what, what a lot of people were projecting. Right. Um, and so I think the, the, the first reason, in my opinion, behind that has been the education on it. We're trying to do a lot more you know, outreach and webinars. I know each and every state ABLE fund is. Um, the second thing that I'd mentioned to families that done of research on on able accounts that may live California, Oregon, Washington, Florida, Texas, you name it, is in the federal able law and the able act. What was put in the able act is what's called a Medicaid payback, mm-hmm. which says that I know you don't know a ton about that, but uh, if an individual with an able account has fifty thousand dollars in their able account, the federal law says if they pass away. Medicaid in their state can essentially recoup funds to re- be reimbursed for the Medicaid service they provided over the point in time in which the individual had their ABLE account. Right. There's been four states that have repealed their Medicaid payback, meaning, you know, for example, Oregon does not have a Medicaid payback. So there's really, really? no concern at this point of funds being repaid to the state Medicaid system. But that's something that if you're looking or if you live in another state, if you have listeners, you know, Gary from North Carolina, you, they'd want to know more about how their state's going to handle, you know, funds that are in the ABLE account at the passing of an ABLE account holder. So, And like Oregon, if they don't have a Medicaid payback and there's funds left into it, how are those funds uh, dispersed upon death of the, the, the beneficiary? So currently ABLE, ABLE Oregon has it set up where you can name a beneficiary to your able account but the beneficiary has to be another able account you know if you if an individual has a brother or sister with, with a disability as well and something happens to them they can leave their funds and goes directly to that individual's able account it doesn't have to be a sibling or a family member it could be a friend in the event in which an individual says or a family says well we just don't have somebody who has another able account we'd want to leave the money to what happens if they pass away is it's a part of the individual's estate mm-hmm. just as if anybody else passes away and they have assets it goes and it's a part of their estate and most of the time it's going to make their way back to a brother or sister or a parent and so it's going to take a little bit longer because there's no named beneficiaries on able right. accounts like there would be on a roth ira or a life insurance policy right. um so if there's no Medicaid payback, it'd make its way back to next of kin, family member, friend, whomever, but it might take a little bit longer. So if there's no payback provision and it goes to the estate, Oregon is saying they're not going to come back on the estate like normal liens and recoup the money for Medicaid? So that's been the big concern uh, uh, throughout the states that that have repealed their Medicaid payback is Medicaid recovery. We're not sure that once the funds leave the ABLE account and now as a part of their state can Medicaid recovery in Oregon, for example, then pounce on that money now that it's no longer in the ABLE account. We just haven't seen enough cases that have showed us what exactly is going to happen and, and how some of the states are going to react to you know funds leaving an ABLE account 
you know, because here in Oregon, you could have a $400,000 ABLE account that I think Medicaid would probably be pretty excited about recouping. <laughs> so that's an, an, another thing about ABLE accounts being fairly new is we just haven't seen, you know, enough situations um, play out to get a good sense of how how that's going to work. Right. ABLE accounts is, is changing and hopefully we'll get the education out there about them. We've used them in good uh, uh, like I said, in conjunction with special needs trust or conservatorships or that sort of thing to set them up. So special needs trust has been around longer than the ABLE accounts uh, and a little more history on how those are administered and what you can do and can't do with regard to those uh, regulations that we have to all abide by if we're a special needs trustee uh, for our beneficiaries. But Explain a little bit about there's a we'll talk first about the first party versus third party special needs trust and what those look like and where the funds come from for for special needs trust under first party and where the funds likely will come from from third party. Yeah, well, it was 1993. I was five years old when OBRA uh, passed the Omnibus Reconciliation Act. Passed in 1993, so that's that's when it, uh, as you previously mentioned, that's when special needs trust rolled out. Yeah. And, and uh, unfortunately, I was a little older than that, 1993. <laughs> but yeah, yep, yep. So, well, in the last, um, you know, call it 28 or so years, boy, have they become a foundational planning tool. When you think about, you know, uh, they they kind of have the same premise as as an able account being. You have an individual receiving needs-based benefits, and the parents say they have a house, and they got a retirement account, they got life insurance, they have assets. Well, at some point, mom and dad are going to pass away, and if they have a million-dollar estate and a single only child that has a disability, how else do you leave that money to them because of that $2,000 asset limit? Obviously, a million-dollar estate going to… You know, their 35-year-old son receiving SSI and Medicaid would jeopardize and eliminate all the benefits he or she receives. So, voila, 1993 comes along. Able, uh, uh, special needs trusts are now federal law. The ability for mom and dad to say, you know what, our million-dollar estate, we will not leave it to our son directly or daughter directly. We're going to draft a special needs trust in our estate planning documents and then retitle our beneficiaries in our estate plan documents to say all of those assets, that million dollars will go into, you know, Johnny Johnson special needs trust. Right. And it's again, the really the, the single only way that you can leave money to an individual and not jeopardize their eligibility. And then obviously you've got great trustees like you, Gary, that are assigned to administer those special needs trusts and make distributions on behalf of the individual to supplement what they're getting in Medicaid or wages they're receiving at work or social security benefits. And so it allows them the ability to keep those very important Medicaid funded social security supports, but yet still have access to a million dollars to add quality of life because we know life's expensive and government benefits don't cover it all. That's correct. Just a little tidbit for you, since you were five in 93, the only reason why this passed Congress and was done is because some of the senators and congressmen, women, had children with disabilities, and they didn't like how if they left it to their their child, 
how that would really take them off all the benefits and make it very uh, unsecure for that individual. So that's that's how it came about. Wow! Wow! So it directly affected the senators in the House of House of Representatives. <laughs> but the thing about uh, special needs trust is, and so if I leave my money to a uh, special needs trust and doesn't go directly to the beneficiary. Is that considered a, a third party trust or first party? Or let's talk a little bit about the differences between those two terms. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's uh, two different types of special needs trusts. Like you mentioned, there's the first party trust and there's a, there's a third party trust. And so what, what the first party refers to is if the individual with, with a disability has any money in their name that they then put inside of a special needs trust, that is referred to as a first party special needs trust because the individual with the disability is that quote unquote first person. Right. They're commonly also referred to as Medicaid payback trusts or self-settled trusts or even some attorneys now refer to them as D4A trusts. All are that first party special needs trusts. On the other end of the continuum of the special needs trust landscape, you have the third party special needs trust. And I'm not sure what happened to the second person, but they went right from first person, first party to third party. But the third party <laughs> trust is, I've heard that joke at way too many conferences, way too many times. <laughs> well, it's a good joke. And it's actually true on that one. Where yeah. is the second person? But it's um, it's money. A third party trust is a special needs trust funded by somebody other than the individual. Right. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. And that's the big difference between the two as the names um, illustrate is who puts the money in. Exactly. And the first party is, like you said, a Medicaid payback. So if the individual passes away, the money does go to Medicaid uh, to pay back the what, I, what I'll call a lien. So if there's additional money over that lien, then that's distributed to the estate because we've paid off the Medicaid liability. The third party, you would designate beneficiaries uh, to receive the money if that individual beneficiary passed away. So that's that's another difference between the mm-hmm. two on that. You administer in the same way as far as regulations go. And I'm very surprised that uh, the ABLE account will let you pay, pay for food and housing, but the special needs trust, on the other hand, will not. And what is defined as housing is is interesting as well within the guidelines. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how what uh, what things can be paid for out of special needs trust and, and other areas that we can look at paying for housing, such as taxes. But there are some offsets that we can do to uh, negate the impact. Yeah. Well, a lot of. A lot of what a trust can pay for, obviously, is 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 laid out in the trust document. You know, we have we have families ask that same same question to us, whether it's on a webinar or in a, a client meeting, and we always say, "Hey, we could tell you what we've seen special needs trust pay for, but the most important thing is make sure go back to your trust document, take a look at it, because a well written, you know, special needs trust should give you some type of of uh, clarity on what the money can be used for." First party special needs trusts are very, very specific. We've had attorneys tell us, you know, you can't really do a lot of um, changing and tweaks with first party trusts. Social Security and Medicaid want to see very specific language. Right. And that very specific language is, like you mentioned, no housing distributions, no food distributions. And that's a hard and fast rule. 
The third party trust, we can be an attorney. I'm not an attorney, but an attorney can be much more flexible on how they draft the language because it's not a Medicaid you know, payback trust. And so we've seen attorneys nowadays drafting third party trusts to say, hey, this trust can you know, pay for food. It can pay for shelter. It can pay for things that may temporarily reduce or eliminate government benefits if it's in the best interest of the individual to make that happen. I think the big concern about you know, some of these special needs trusts that don't allow for food and shelter distributions is specifically we see food and we see shelter being two really expensive items and items that the cost of those items is, is, is growing up substantially. Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver. I mean, you name it, wherever you live, your rent costs or housing costs are likely going through the roof substantially. And with Social Security, um, you know, historically not keeping pace with the, the rising cost of, of housing without a trust that, that can make a distribution for, you know, housing, the concern could be long term. Well, gosh, we got a million dollars in a trust, but we can't pay for, you know, food and food and shelter expenses. Is there anything we can do? And that's where we see a lot of distributions being made from a special needs trust to an ABLE account because of the flexibility of right. ABLE account. So I think uh, I think attorneys are getting really, really good at, you know, how do we draft a, a, a trust that protects eligibility for needs-based benefits, number one, but also can meet the individual wherever they are at in life. Because again, we yeah. had a phone call with, with, with a family yesterday. They have a son with an autism diagnosis, mid-20s, extremely high-functioning. In 10 years, he could be making $65,000 as an engineer, or he could be not employed, still living at home with mom and dad, no plans for, you know, right. uh, uh, being, being self-sufficient or self-supported, you know? And so um, that's where I think the flexibility becomes important. Flexibility is key. And um, what we find is if we can't qualify the individual due to the 26 or under regulation on the ABLE accounts, we do have some flexibility in paying for housing. And you're right, uh, rents are, are, are a huge amount of a, a disabled person's budget. And if you haven't gotten them into section housing, subsidized housing, or in other types of living arrangements, the expectation for them to pay rent out of 841 is unrealistic. And you know that, and I know that. So what we've done in the past and still do is we are able Due to the the guidelines, the Social Security guidelines, we take the third reduction every month off of those benefits of 841 and pay the housing. And because that's the only way the person is going to be able to live is by the special needs trust paying that specific housing expense. Um, we also, at times, when we can't don't have a, a um, able account to, to pay the taxes out of or anything else, we literally the month that the taxes are due, we uh, declare that as a third deduction from the from the benefit and pay the taxes and anything else we can do uh, for that individual annually uh, in order to limit the ability of uh, the beneficiary to not be that inconvenienced. And we can also make up the difference between the the third dis- distribution, the third they took, put it back into them out of the special needs trust. So there are things that we can do. The food thing is interesting to me because people go out, McDonald's, uh, 
all the, the fast food and stuff, and, and they're considering in that. Um, but there's really not a guideline that I'm aware of, and, and I don't know whether you are, about if they're, if they what they considered to travel out of their area, whether that would be considered a trip or a vacation versus where they're located. Do you know anything about that one, Connor? The specifics, no. You know, what I've um, what I've heard and seen has been, you know, if 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 an individual is going to the grocery store and they're gonna, you know, they need to spend a hundred dollars on groceries, unfortunately, that's not an approved expense right. under what we've seen. You know, you bring up a good point. If they go to I keep using the, the Mariners game example, yeah. but if they go to a Mariners game, they buy a hot dog. Where does that where does that fall? I don't know the know the know the specifics of that, luckily. You know, I think the ABLE account, if you are eligible, simplifies that. So that's going to yeah, exactly. be my uh, exactly. my easy way out answer to your tough question, Gary. But well, what we follow follow is that if it's something they're traveling to, we consider that to be a vacation, a trip. Mm-hmm. So the food is included as part of that, hotel rooms and all of that. Yeah. Also, uh, there is a little unknown fact out there that. Really, you have up to $60 per month that you don't have to account for on food. So we lump those McDonald's uh, Hmm. going to buying things at at the Chevron station down the street uh, into that and, and, and have been very successful in that. The other thing that's kind of interesting about the food versus the other one is we have clients that are in special needs trust that work at a fast food restaurant. They get a discount, they eat there. And how is that reflected in the special needs trust? So we've been wrestling with that. I'm not sure of the answer on that one yet, but I, I, I'm, what we're doing is, is putting it as an employment expense mm. because to me, they're eating there during their work. It's part of a benefit. So it is employment. We haven't had any issues with yeah. that, but that's been the, the latest one that we've come across. On that. Yeah. That makes sense. So if I want to open up, I go to my attorney and I open up a special needs trust and and it's going to be either first or third party. What are some of the considerations on setting it up as far as I know we come to you to say, help us plan, help us do the investing of this to fit the client's needs on that one. So tell me a little bit or relay a little bit on how that looks, Connor. There's so I think we get a lot of families who think that once they get a special needs trust drafted, boom, they're done. They can kind of move on to to the next thing. What we always say is it's kind of like buying a car. Like, you know, once you buy a car, you drive off a lot and you park in your garage. Well, there's going to have to be a couple things happen for that car to actually go to this next destination, whether it's a store or wherever. One, you got to put gas in it. And two, there's got to be someone driving it. Right. And I use that analogy of saying, well, the gas is like in a special needs trust example is the money going into the trust. So we have to think about how are we going to fund it? What are the assets that we leave behind to the trust, whether it's now or at your passing life insurance, Roth IRA, brokerage account, real estate. So we got to think about how we're going to plan on funding it, the assets, the amount, how it's going to impact mom, dad's retirement, all that kind of stuff. The other thing is, you know, in drafting of the of the special needs trust, you're going to appoint a trustee. You're going to name a trustee, and that person or you know entity has to know about the individual with a disability and the benefits they're receiving, and kind of be up to speed on some of these things that 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 we've just gone through for the last 50 minutes. 
And so all of those things are equally important as the actual document is we want somebody who, you know, um, is, has, has experience in that. And, and then I think lastly is understanding how the trust, the special needs trust plugs into the overall support plan. Right. Where does the individual live? Are they employed? How do they get to their doctor's appointments? Who are their support worker? You know, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, it's a, you know, especially trust is a foundational piece, but there's many other things that should be built around it to make it operate effectively and to be, you know, to, to best support the individual. So, yeah. so if it's a, a first party and say it's a personal injury type of settlement that has come in and, and we call structured settlements in those, which means they look at cash, they look at annuities, they look at all those investments. How is that differently handled than someone opening up a third party? Great question. So we typically see third party trust being drafted and funded to be, hey, it's proactive. It's mom and dad who are 50 years old. They're thinking about what happens when they're 90. You know, they're just being more proactive and thinking three or four steps ahead. And so the need to fund it, the need for the money for the individual isn't as important because they have mom to rely on or dad to rely on or, or you know, other supports because their parents are still here. In a first party situation where you get a settlement from a personal injury you know, situation, what typically happens in those instances is you have somebody who just got in a motorcycle accident that now they need support. Their life has totally changed. Mm-hmm. They go from being $80,000 a year working as a general manager of a restaurant to now being needing full-time, full-time care. And so when we think about how the investments on or the just the planning for third-party trust differs from a first party, first party is, hey, that money is likely going to be used in the days or the weeks after the settlement, you know, funds into the into the first party trust. So we don't have a 10-year time horizon. We got expenses that have to be paid ASAP. So we're being really, really, you know, thoughtful about we got to have some in cash. We got to have some in really conservative investments. We got to be conscious about the tax implications depending on the amount. And so, and then there's, you know, many different family dynamics, you know, in a first party trust situation where absolutely. You know, um, we could talk for hours about that, but um, but though they're both special needs trusts, first and third party, boy, are they different just just in the stage of life in which, in many instances, they're in. So, and they're more different in administration side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the first party usually has a lot of, if it's a personal injury s- settlement has a care plan or life plan that they've projected out what the individual is going to need over the life of the disability. Uh, and that is used as the basis for determining how much you put in the structured settlement. And we'll have another discussion about structured settlement at some point, but uh, you would put it annuities cash. What are your immediate needs looked at after you got it? Most of the first party we have, it always want to have they're looking at purchasing a home, the trust purchasing a home, a wheelchair accessible van. So those are immediate needs that we need out of that. So as a trustee, we have to make sure that those funds are available and work with you and other individuals to ensure that we've got that pretty well covered. Because if we tie it up in annuities, when we need the cash, we're, we're, we're up the creek without a paddle, as we say. And so we're really having to look at that. Also, I think the expectations of the beneficiary and the family members is quite different 
than what the expectations of the third party individual is. And a lot of times, uh, and this is my personal slant on it, is the personal injury attorneys usually tell the beneficiary and the family things that the special needs trust can do that is not correct. And so they're, they're, they're sitting there going, oh, they, they said we could do that. Well, no, no you can't do that. We're not, we, we cannot do that. So I think that's, that's one of the key things about working with that. So the special needs trust arena is, uh, is a, might be a better tool if you're looking at a third party for ABLE account. It's still an ABLE account after you get up to a certain limit if there's a payback. Would that be a fair assumption on my part? Yeah, I would say in many instances, most families that we work with, there is an ABLE account and especially trust as part of the overall plan. They're both important and impactful, just do different things. And we, right. what, what we generally tell, tell families is, hey, think of that third-party special needs trust that you're drafting to, uh, for the ability to leave money behind your child without impacting their eligibility. Um, that's a longer-term tool. You likely won't fund it maybe for next couple of years or a decade. Right. And so it's, again, long-term, it's that wealth transfer vehicle, essentially. Okay. The ABLE account is great for birthday money. It's great for Christmas money. It's in, it's dollars they get from employment. It's you want to yeah. save systematically every month into something that's really flexible. That is an able account. And that's, you know, where we generally see it, see it fitting in. So both important, both impactful, just, just different. Exactly. There we have, we've been talking about standalone, a special needs trust. There are, is a vehicle car called pooled trust, which are, each state may have one administered by a nonprofit within their state. And so that is an option that I think can be looked at for individuals with lesser amounts of money. Um, we usually say at least a, a hundred thousand or less goes into that type of program, but any, any ideas or words on, on that? Are you familiar with how that those are set up and what they look like? Yeah. I think those are really important. You know, I think pooled trusts um, have a very important piece kind of just in the overall landscape of special needs planning because, you know, like you mentioned, not everybody has a million dollar estate. There's families that have, you know, six kids and they want their estate to be distributed evenly. And maybe it's only going to be 85,000 left, right. you know, to a, to a child or, you know, uh, or maybe it's not a million dollar settlement from a motorcycle accident, but maybe the individual is 16, they get, you know, hit on their bike and it's a $16,000 settlement or a $26,000 settlement. You know, those pooled trusts become really impactful and important to, in that situation. So we see those become more and more important depending on the situation. I think the other big, big benefit is many families turn to us and they say, Hey, Connor, we don't know who we're going to name as trustee when we're no longer here. Well, the benefit of, you know, using one of those, those pooled trusts is that entity, they have the ability to serve as trustee. Right. They do all the tax prep, they do the distributions. And obviously, you know, tons about that because you guys are such an important player in that arena. But uh, so, yeah. Well, I think they one fit. of the benefits of the pool trust on the smaller ones is we've already had the joiner agreement and other agreements reviewed and blessed by attorneys, but they're also blessed by DH Department of Human Services in both Oregon and Washington. We have a first and third party are blessed in those states. So you don't have to worry about 
maybe not having a, a pool trust that qualifies within those two right. states. So I think that's important. It takes, so there's no legal cost onto it. And usually they're coming in at flat fees on what they're doing. And then the investments are pooled together under an investment plan that allows them to receive more investment type of benefits because it's a larger pool of monies going into it. But those are some of the benefits of, of that happening in really good, uh, good way of working with it. There's been a couple of ripplings in that market recently. One is out of the South where uh, a nonprofit world uh, trust, uh, pool trust was taking profit and putting it into a for-profit agency or for-profit. And so the OCC has said, you cannot do that. It needs to stay within the nonprofit in order to make that happen. And so now they're, they're regulate, we'll start regulating those larger pool trusts. So I would just caution the listeners to really do your research and find out how long we've been around. If what happens to, if they make a profit, where does it go? I think is the key mm. questions to ask on that. Yeah. Yeah. And in our Washington pool trust on the first party, if the individual passes away, uh, half of the money goes to back to the Medicaid lien per our agreement with them and 50% stay in the trust and it's divided among the beneficiaries in the trust. So you're able to get more money. Wow to do that. Oregon, of course, wouldn't allow it, but Washington yeah. did. That's so, great. That's a huge benefit. Cool. It is. And, and, and we've actually uh, had a fairly large one pass away and that really did benefit the clients within the, the pool hmm. trust uh, by about five or 8,000 each within their additional Incredible. funds. So special needs trust. Um, I think I would ask that we come back together at some point, talk specifically about special needs trust. Uh, because you are the expert in that and who we turn to, we need to know that those know uh, anything about it, the investment side or how to set them up, as well as the government benefits. You guys are awesome about helping individuals out with that uh, to do that. But is there anything you want to else you want to add about special needs trust? No, I think uh, I think we've touched on a lot of the important things. You know, um, I guess the the only parting words I'd have is. Begin as a family, begin thinking about the planning now where we see right. a lot of families, they come at, come to us when, you know, they're in their early 70s and their son is or daughter's 40. But if your child just received a diagnosis, whether they're, you know, three or eight or 10 years old, start thinking about these things now because it gives you such a long timeline to really start putting all these different things in place. So that would it's, be my It's very advice. true. And there's some additional, we come back, additional ways in which we can take and and create a special needs trust if one hasn't been established before. So that'll be something I'm talking about. Also, there is an administration hand guide that I have on my website produced that really goes into detail about what first and third party are, talks about, you know, what we can pay for and how we do it. It goes about the third um, reduction. So I would, we'll, we'll post that on our um, website, I mean, post it uh, with this podcast and allow people to go in and look at it. It's a very good tool. It's done by an association out of California, mm. but we utilize it all the time. That's great. Yeah. Connor, thank you so much uh, for sharing uh, your wisdom with us today, the ABLE Account and Special Needs Trust. It's always been a pleasure and uh, take care. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me and always good chatting with you. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle, presented by me, Gary Beagle. 
be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.